All right, good morning, everyone. Um, we'll go ahead and get started in just a second here. Uh, this is, by the way, the Galatians class, so if you're here for Galatians, uh, great. Um, but um, I'll give everyone a moment to find their seats and whatnot and get situated. Um, there are handouts in the back, as always. Uh, so uh, there are two handouts this time. One is the notes for this week. The other uh, requires a little bit more explanation. I'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, but the other is actually a translation of uh, the book of Galatians. And I'll say a little bit more about that uh, in just a moment. But if you haven't had a chance yet, go ahead and grab uh, the handouts that are in the back and uh, sign in if you haven't had the chance to do that yet. Um, and otherwise, for those that uh, may not know me, uh, my name is Jim Newman, and uh, I teach here quite a bit. I um, teach Sunday school quite a bit here, but in my day job, I uh, do two things. I two day jobs, I guess. Uh, one is that I teach at the seminary, um, where I'm currently teaching Paul and his letters, so uh, you're actually getting the benefit of hearing me teach this for the second time recently. Um, and, uh, and so whatever mistakes I made the first time, hopefully I, hopefully I can correct them this time. Uh, my other day job is that I help coordinate the Mind the Gap program here at Stonehill, so um, that's what I do in the rest of my time. But my favorite thing, actually, that I do, one of my favorite things that I do in my whole life right now um, is actually teaching Sunday school here. Um, because there's a special joy that comes with teaching God's Word in the church uh, to God's people. And I'm a firm believer that you can actually go deeper, that Scripture actually comes alive uh, the most, comes into its maximal depth when we talk about it together in the context of the church. So uh, I'm particularly excited to be able to talk about Galatians. Um, this is a study that I knew I wanted to do for some time. And uh, I'll say a little bit about why, why Galatians in particular. There are a lot of different letters that Paul wrote that, we could have, that I could have chosen. Um, and on a personal note, Galatians, for a lot of uh, my time growing up and my time studying Paul's letters, was never really my favorite of Paul's letters. It wasn't that I disliked it. It was just that there were a lot of other letters that spoke to me more. And so it was never really my go-to. But as I was studying Paul in depth this summer, um, I came to, to Galatians and seemed to read it in a way I'd never read it before. And it came alive to me in a way that it never did before. And what I'd like to do now for the next seven weeks is have a chance to share with you some of what um, I learned, some of the insights uh, that I gained from uh, studying this letter. Um, in the course of that, as sort of a pet project while I was studying Paul this summer, I found myself undertaking my own personal translation of Galatians. And uh, it was something that I put a lot of time in. I don't really know how many hours, ultimately. It was just sort of a pet project that I would work on an hour here, an hour there. And I translated, and I retranslated, and I consulted lexicon after lexicon on every questionable word choice, and then translated again, and then consulted all the other major translations out there and compared notes with them. And um, then tried to proofread this thing, although I already found a mistake in it this morning. So 
Um, apologize for that, but, uh, but anyway, that is the explanation behind what you have in front of you. And uh, my reason for doing this translation was not, um, first of all, I did it for my own value, but uh, my reason for giving it to others is not that our existing translations are inadequate. Um, we have a lot of major translations in the English language, all of which are, um, most of which are outstanding. Uh, so whether you're reading the ESV or the um, NASB or NIV um, or any of the other major translations, all those are great translations, but every translation has something a little bit different that it's trying to accomplish. And most are driven either by the question, by, by one of two concerns, what we call formal equivalence, which is what we think of as a very literal translation, trying to um, translate word for word uh, as much as possible. And then there's what we, that's what the ESV does. And then there's what we call dynamic equivalence, um, which is trying to preserve the, the feeling uh, and the, uh, the force, the gist of what the Greek is saying, um, but not necessarily word for word. That's more what the NIV does. Uh, my own philosophy was something that was a little bit different and a little bit of a cross between those two, which was to say, when I read it in Greek, and based on everything I know about the ancient Greco-Roman world, what kind of reading experience do I think this was for the original readers? And how do I produce a translation that reproduces the experience of the original readers in the ancient context? And so at times that means that when the Greek is awkward, when it's, when it's literally awkward in the original language, I've translated it awkwardly um, to preserve that effect. Um, and uh, so at times what that means is I was more literal even than the ESV. At times I'm more dynamic, it depends. I'm just governed by a different question. Um, and that question was, how would the original readers have heard this? What would its effect on them have been? And how can I somehow produce the same effect in a modern translation? Uh, so that's what you have in front of you, and I hope that it will be helpful. Um, it's what I'll teach from, but if you want to read from any other translation, that's fine, and it probably won't be so terribly different that, um, that uh, you won't be able to follow along. So uh, anyway, that's just a few explanations. Um, why don't I pray, and we'll go ahead and jump into the study. Father, uh, we thank you this morning for the chance that we have to study your word with one another. We thank you uh, for bringing us together in this place. We thank you for this time that we have to worship you. And we thank you that wherever two or three or more are, are gathered, you are with us. And uh, we ask that your spirit would indeed be with us today as we open your word together and that you would lead us and guide us through this study of Galatians um, and that you would help us not only to understand what your word has to say to us, but how to apply it in our lives. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, okay, so let me go ahead and say a few things by way of background about Galatians before I actually get into the text. Um, first of all, this was probably, in my view and in the view of a lot of scholars out there, Paul's earliest letter, probably written about A.D. 49, which makes it uh, on a par with James, if that's true, with, if, as one of the two earliest documents in the New Testament. So we're talking about um, probably 15 years uh, at least before, 15, 17, somewhere around there, years before 
any of the Gospels were written, and the very first of Paul's letters. There's a little bit of disagreement about that among scholars. Um, as some think that Galatians was written a little bit later in Paul's career, so mid-50s. Um, many, like me, think that it was written earlier, around AD 49. Um, so what we do know is that Paul seems to have founded the Galatian churches during his first missionary journey, which is depicted for you up on that map. You can't see that super well, but I will say that any, you know, all the slides, uh, all the maps, every handout and the translation, all of that is on the loop. So if you want to download that for yourself and get a closer look later, you can. Um, but Paul founded these churches during his first journey. And he seems to have written this letter shortly after the end of that journey. Um, and actually, Nathaniel, if we can transition slides. On the back of the translation handout, you have a timeline that I've put together, and here's just a little snippet from it. Um, but he seems to, but you can see kind of in there where I think Paul wrote um, the letter to the Galatians. And it would be somewhere not long after the end of his first missionary journey, and a little bit before the Jerusalem Council, which takes place in Acts 15. Um, and so that kind of shows you roughly where in Paul's career um, this probably took place. What is essential to understand about Galatians up front is not so much when he wrote it, um, but the fact that he definitely writes this letter to Gentile Christians. Um, the peoples that inhabited that region um, of, uh, that we know as Galatia would have been uh, very predominantly Gentiles, and the letter itself bears witness to the fact that Paul is writing to Gentiles. Uh, this, as we'll see throughout the study of the letter, is important. Um, what seems to have happened shortly after Paul left Galatia then, we can kind of infer this from various things that are said in the letter, is that alternative missionaries Alternative Jewish Christian missionaries seem to have come behind him, teaching uh, a different gospel, teaching that the Galatians must be circumcised and become obedient to the Jewish law, the Torah, in order to be a part of the true people of God and, and thus to be saved. So, so pretty clear what they were teaching. They were teaching that you must be circumcised, you must become obedient to the law in order to be saved. Paul, upon hearing this, is apparently furious, and we can tell from this letter, um, because uh, Paul, uh, for Paul, this amounts to an absolute betrayal of everything that the gospel of Jesus Christ stands for. To say that you must be circumcised and obey the Jewish law in order to be saved, in order to be part of the people of God, is for Paul a betrayal of the gospel. And hence, we get the letter to the Galatians a letter written to correct this false perspective that is being tossed around. Um, to, to show us a little bit of what is at stake here in telling Gentiles that they must become obedient to the Jewish law in order to be part of the people of God, uh, one scholar in a recent book, John Barclay, puts it this way, at stake is whether Christianity will amount to a reform movement within Judaism or whether it will be able to include non-Jews and form communities outside of Jewish tradition. In other words, whether it will be able to cross ethnic and cultural boundaries. So something pretty significant at stake right there. And I would argue that uh, we'll see throughout the course of this letter that that is the bare minimum of what is at stake in, uh, in Galatians. Um, so 
That's just a little bit of background. Let's go ahead and uh, jump into the text itself. Uh, and I think what I'll do here is read the first 12 verses and pause there for now, and then we'll discuss that section of the letter. By the way, I should say I want to leave uh, some time at the end for questions, but if anyone has a, a burning question for clarification at, at any time during the talk, uh, please just raise your hand. So. All right, uh, so Galatians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle not from human beings, nor by a human being, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, is with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might pull us out of the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astounded that you are so quickly defecting from the one who called you in the grace of Christ for another gospel, which is not another, but there are some who have stirred you up and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel besides the one we proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel besides the one you received, let him be accursed. For, our, for do I now obey human beings or God, or do I seek to please human beings? If I were still seeking to please human beings, I would not be a slave of Christ. For I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I neither received it from human beings, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, so I'll pause there. And uh, let me go ahead and break down for us what we see in this opening, uh, the letter opening from verses 1 to 5. And get a drink while I'm at it. Um, so one of the things that we see right away in the very first verse of Galatians is this polarity, this dichotomy, you could say, that Paul sets up between the human and the divine. Um, we see it right there in verse 1. Paul, an apostle not from human beings, nor by a human being, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Um, and so a lot of uh, commentators will read this and, and say Paul is defending his apostleship. Uh, defending the quality of his apostleship. He was appointed by Christ, not by a human being. And probably that is part of what's going on, but Paul is not just defending his apostleship here, but actually the character of the gospel itself. Uh, what, what he is getting at right away from the first verse of this gospel, or letter rather, is that the gospel is not of human origin, but of, uh, but of divine origin. It is a gift from God. So there's a basic dichotomy there of human origin versus gift from God. Uh, and Paul puts the gospel entirely on one side of that uh, polarity. Second thing that we see that is of supreme importance in this letter in these first five verses is, is the subject of grace and the emphasis that Paul puts on grace. Um, now, in verse 3, he writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Paul starts many of his letters similarly to that uh, by saying grace to you and peace or something along those lines. 
It's very typical of Paul. Um, but in this case, he goes on immediately to back up that, that statement, grace to you, by defining exactly what grace is and what he means by grace. Um, and, uh, and he does that in verse 4. Before I get to verse 4, let me just say, though, one thing that's important to understand about this language, about this word grace that is used frequently throughout Galatians, is that uh, the language of grace, or in Greek, charis, um, in the ancient world was virtually synonymous with the language of gift. So it was part of, it was part of the language of gift in the ancient world. Uh, it had a broad range of possible uses and possible meanings um, and various translation values that we see even within the New Testament might include, uh, depending on the context, grace, gift, favor, generosity, um, any of those ideas. But it was a major word in uh, the Greco-Roman world and was part of their overall language of gift. Um, so ha keeping that in mind, when we then read verse 4, following uh, on the heels of this statement, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins so that he might pull us out of the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Um, so what he's doing here is he's specifically defining grace as the gift of Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might pull us out of the present evil age. Uh, grace is specifically the gift of Jesus Christ uh, for Paul. So it's not just some generic idea. Uh, you know, what, what does Paul mean when he talks about grace? What do we mean when we talk about grace? Paul actually tells us pretty specifically here this is not just a generic idea or an abstract concept. Uh, when Paul talks about grace, he means very specifically the gift of Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Um, and, uh, and so he puts that front and center in uh, these opening verses. In verse 5 then, the last thing that we see in this opening is that the logical outcome of God's grace is is glory, is glory to God forever and ever. How does that work? Well, what we're seeing here is that, uh, is that God's grace leads naturally to doxology. Grace leads to praise. And uh, as Paul unpacks that thought throughout the rest of this letter, we'll see that uh, through God's grace, um, the, the picture that Paul is giving us is that through God's grace and by God's design, we become creatures of glory and praise that reflect God's own glory back to him, or as he puts it at the end of the letter, new creations. In these five verses, you have most of the core themes of Galatians in a nutshell. Everything that he's going to say for the rest of the letter is somehow already contained um, in these five verses. Um, So moving on then, uh, from, from there he gets, when we get to verse six, verses six through nine, this is where we start to get a little bit of, hint of a hint of the problem in the letter. Um, he's, he's already come out, sw come out swinging in the very first verse, uh, right away defending the character of the gospel, reminding us of uh, the grace of God. And um, now in verse six, he starts to touch on the problem, whatever has happened here. In Galatia. And he says, 
uh, I am astounded that you are so quickly defecting from the one who called you in the grace of Christ for another gospel. Um, different translations will translate the word that I've translated defecting in various ways. I've chosen that word because this is literally the word that was used in the Roman army. If someone, if a soldier were to defect from the army um, or desert on the battlefield, um, this is the word that would be used. So, um, so it's a word that describes shedding your allegiance. Um, you, you're, you're betraying, in a sense, um, the one who called you in the grace of Christ for another gospel. So this is not a small matter. Uh, this, is, uh, this is huge, the accusation here, and that you are so quickly defecting from the one who called you in the grace of Christ. Um, and we get, we get a little bit of a sense, too, in verse 7 uh, of the situation that's at hand. He says, there are some who have stirred you up and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Again, referring to these alternative, or Paul would undoubtedly say false missionaries who have come behind him preaching uh, a false gospel. But one of the things that is remarkable here in these first few verses uh, is that uh, is the exact language that Paul uses in verse 8. Uh, but even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel besides the one we proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. Um, besides, not, not instead of, but Paul uses a preposition there that could literally be translated alongside. Um, besides or alongside the one that we preached to you. Not instead of, but besides. Um, and so the issue that's at stake here is uh, really, properly speaking, not, uh, not a matter of trading one gospel for another. Uh, it's not rejecting one and accepting another, um, but actually seeking to add to the gospel that Paul has given and to add something else alongside it. And even this, Paul says, um, is actually to defect from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Um, to add to the gospel, to add anything to it, is in fact to falsify it, and in that way, to reject it. Um, and so what is at stake here is nothing short of the integrity of the gospel. Um, but, uh, but we can't miss the fact that, that again, uh, what's going on in Galatia is not, is not trading one gospel for another, it's the issue of adding something to the gospel, which from Paul's point of view is actually to reject the grace of God. Um, Paul's anger here uh, we see come through very clearly in these verses. Uh, not only does he just come out swinging with the statement, I am astounded that you are so quickly defecting, um, but twice before this paragraph is over, uh, he says about these false preachers or anyone who would proclaim a gospel besides the one that he has proclaimed to them, uh, let him be accursed. Um, let him be cut off from God's people is in effect what that means. Um, and he says it once, and then he immediately says it again to reemphasize his point. So we see Paul probably as angry as we ever see him anywhere in his letters um, in this paragraph. And so sometimes Galatians is referred to uh, as angry Paul. Um, this is his angry letter. And uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why some people are a little bit put off by it sometimes. But one thing I want to say here is that properly understood, reading this paragraph closely, uh, we have to ask the question, who is Paul angry at? 
he's not so much angry at the Galatians. He's probably a bit frustrated with them, a bit annoyed with them, um, as we'll see more later in the letter. But he is primarily angry at the false preachers who are steering them away from the true gospel and, as he sees it, jeopardizing their future in Christ. And so this is really the anger of a pastor who is deeply concerned for his flock. Uh, you can think of Paul almost here as um, a father who is angry because someone's been messing with his children and leading them astray. Um, so hopefully as we read this letter, we not only see angry Paul, but we see the heart of Paul, the pastoral heart of Paul and the concern and the love that he has for, um, for his churches. Um, oh, and I should, well, actually, let me just do it now. So uh, when we get to verses 10 through 12, uh, we're right back to that same dichotomy that he opened with. He opened by setting up this dichotomy between the human and the divine, that which is of human origin versus that which is a gift of God. And we're right back to it in verses 10 through 12. And you can see in this paragraph exactly how important that is to him. Um, and here he goes right away in verse 10. For do I now obey human beings or God? Or do I seek to please human beings? If I were still seeking to please human beings, I would not be a slave of Christ. And so you can see that dichotomy right away between the human and the divine again. Um, and then verse 11. For I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I neither received it from human beings, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a, re a revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, and so there you really see that it is, as I said, um, it's not just his apostleship that he is defending, but the character of the gospel itself. What is central to Paul to say in this opening section is that the gospel is not of human origin. It is a gift from God, and that is going to underlie everything else that he has to say about the gospel in his letter to the Galatians. Um, and so part of that, though, part of defending that character of the gospel is to make sure that they know that he did not receive it from human beings. Um, as far as Paul's concerned, nobody taught him this. Uh, he wants them to know, I didn't learn this from the other apostles. People didn't teach me this when I came to Christ. Um, you all need to know that I received the gospel that I've given to you straight from Jesus Christ himself. Now, when did that happen? Well, as we'll see in the next paragraph, um, Paul is talking about his experience on the Damascus Road, his encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. Um, we have only a, uh, an abbreviated account of that that Luke gives us in Acts, and Paul recounts a little bit of it here um, as well in the coming paragraph. Um, but apparently, um, part of the encounter that he had with Christ involved receiving the gospel from him. And uh, so, but, but, this is, but this is why Paul is so emphatic here that he received the revelation, uh, received the gospel through a direct revelation from Jesus Christ, not from human beings, um, because that goes toward, again, establishing that the gospel is of divine origin as a gift from God not of human origin. Um, and, okay, I have a little bit of time here to get into the next paragraph. Um, 
All right, so in the next paragraph then, Paul goes into his biography a little bit. Let me read that for us, verses 13 to 24. For you have heard about my former conduct in Judaism, that I persecuted God's church to the extreme and tried to destroy it, and I was progressing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my generation because I was far more zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim the good news about him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but rather I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And these things, these things I write to you, look, before God, I am not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and, Cilicia, uh, and my face was not known to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They heard only that the one who persecuted us now proclaims the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God on my account. There are several things going on in this paragraph, and I probably won't get through um, all of them, so we'll follow up with some of this next time. Um, but to begin with, uh, Paul starts rehearsing his former resume, so to speak, uh, in Judaism. Uh, verses 13 and 14, you've heard about my former conduct in Judaism, that I persecuted God's church. Um, I was progressing, progressing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries because I was far more zealous uh, for my ancestral traditions. Um, so, so he goes to, he's, he's rehearsing this background that he has, his resume, so to speak, in Judaism, but he does so really only to disregard it. Um, when we get down to verse 15, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim the good news about him among the Gentiles, pause there. Um, what has happened here in these verses is that Paul has uh, rehearsed his resume only in order to show that it was not on the basis of that resume that God revealed himself to him or that he called him. Um, and so that same dichotomy between human and divine shows up here in Paul's own life. Um, in other words, he's saying, look, it wasn't because of my former conduct in Judaism. It wasn't because of my zeal. It certainly wasn't because I was a persecutor of the church that God called me, that he set me up, but rather he set me apart from my mother's womb. In other words, before any of that, before I had done anything on a human level, um, it, he set me apart from my mother's womb and he called me by his grace. Again, remembering that grace is virtually synonymous with gift in the ancient world. He called me as a gift. Um, he was pleased. It simply pleased him to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim the good news about him among the Gentiles. Um, and so what Paul does here is in effect to deny that um, the reason why God called him has anything to do with any of his human qualities, uh, whether it's his identity as a Jew ethnically or his accomplishments, including his moral accomplishments, within Judaism, none of these things are the reason why God called him. In fact, the reality is that God did not call him because of 
his background or his accomplishments. He called him in spite of them, um, precisely in spite of them, because after all, uh, it turns out Paul may have thought in his former life in Judaism that he was serving God by persecuting the church, but he found out on the road to Damascus that that was not serving God at all. It was doing the opposite. He was persecuting God's church and trying to destroy it. So when, when in fact God called him, it was not because of what he had been doing. It was not because of his previous life. It was directly in spite of it. Um, and uh, let's see. So, um, so, so that's the first part of what he's up to. In, uh, in verses 13 through 16. Um, and I'll just say a couple other quick words about this and then um, I'm weighing my time here. Um, yeah, actually I'm gonna move on um, just a little bit further. Um, the other thing that we see him take up again right at the end of verse 16 is he goes right back to, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. After his Damascus experience, he's saying, look, I didn't immediately go up to Jerusalem to learn from the apostles to get the gospel from them. Um, again, he got it by direct revelation from God. Um, um, but, he's, but he's rehearsing his whole biography here in order to establish that point and show at every, um, at every turn here that he did not go and get the gospel from other people, but that it came to him directly uh, from Jesus Christ. So uh, I did not go up to Jerusalem. Instead, he went out to Arabia. Um, he went uh, somewhere entirely different. The, uh, the reasons for that, by the way, why he went to Arabia uh, are a matter of, I wouldn't say debate, it's more like a matter of mystery among scholars, um, and one that scholars continue to ask, and every commentator will propose various answers to. Um, and there is simply no clear evidence because this right here, this one sentence is the most information we have about Paul in Arabia. And based on this, it's kind of hard to say concretely what he was doing there, why he went. Um, uh, there are some interesting theories, some of which I've given you in the footnotes on the translation. Um, but then he continues toward the end of this paragraph. Uh, then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem uh, and visit with Cephas. We have that, um, if you look at the timeline I've given you, I've kind of lined that up with where I think that occurs in Acts. Um, but, but, you know, he makes the point here. I stayed 15 days with him, but I didn't see any of the other apostles. Um, in other words, look, I didn't get the gospel from the apostles. I got it from Jesus Christ himself. Um, and... Um, I'll just end by saying, if, if you compare what he says in verses 21 uh, and 22, it's actually really easy to line that up with the account that Luke gives us in Acts, and I've done that on the timeline that I gave you. Um, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and pause there, stop there for this week, and open up uh, the last 10 minutes for questions. Yes? Um, great question. So, it, who were the alternative missionaries um, uh, that we're talking about here? Well, um, it's, we don't really know a lot about them, but 
it's interesting that around the time where I think Galatians is written, um, you also have uh, in Acts a, a little bit of an account of this given of um, Jewish Christians who were saying, you must be circumcised. Um, thank you. And uh, we're told a little bit more in Acts. We're told that they seem to come from a Pharisee background which makes a lot of sense that Pharisees would be the sorts, so former Pharisees converted to um, Christianity, but it makes a lot of sense that they would be the sorts who would emphasize the need to uh, be obedient to the law. Uh, what's really interesting about that too is, of course, Paul is a former Pharisee. And that, so you have here uh, a former Pharisee um, who has realized that the things that he thought mattered don't matter, uh, now arguing against other former Pharisees who are saying the opposite. And um, so Paul probably understands the people that he's arguing against very well. Um, that doesn't change the fact that he uh, disagrees with them at the most profound level. Um, the other thing I'll say is that if you read the early chapters of Acts, really starting in chapter 11 is where we, we start to see it uh, begin and ramp up. Um, one of the earliest controversies in the church is about whether Gentiles can come into the church without essentially becoming Jewish first, um, without um, being circumcised, without becoming obedient to the law, without adopting a Jewish way of life. And, um, you know, Peter is initially uh, shocked um, in his experience in Acts chapter 10, it takes Jesus himself doing some um, pretty dramatic work with Peter uh, to get Peter to realize that that's not necessary. Um, and Peter goes back in chapter 11 and reports what he's learned um, in this experience to the rest of uh, the church in Jerusalem. Um, but he actually meets with a lot of opposition uh, initially because there are so many who are saying, um, you've got to be circumcised. Um, they had never imagined um, the, for the earliest Christians, all of whom would have been of Jewish backgrounds, um, had never imagined uh, that Gentiles could come to faith apart from uh, any standing whatsoever in Jewish tradition or in the law. Um, and so that's a little bit of a, the background. Uh, by the time we see, you know, you can sort of chronicle the the mounting tensions from Acts 15 or 11 to Acts 15, where they have the Jerusalem Council to resolve the whole issue. I think that Paul is writing um, shortly before the Jerusalem Council, um, uh, where uh, he too is seeing the issue come to a head. Um, hopefully, that helps. Um, in short, we don't really know exactly who they were, but we know a little bit about the background. Um, other questions? bring you the mic. So I've heard gospel means the good news that's too good to be true, but it is true. And then I've also heard that it actually, for those that heard it, understood that it was actually a military term, that you have a new mm. leader, you have allegiance to a new leader. Mm -hmm. So could you just explain the difference maybe between what the Jewish and the Gentiles would have considered because he's writing to the Gentiles? 
And then maybe also church, I mean, I think we have this idea that, you know, we have this idea here in the 21st century of church, but when they heard the term church, what would have been the difference between the Jew and the Gentile? Uh, great questions. Um, so, uh, with, with gospel, with euangelion, uh, a word that we translate gospel, sometimes good news, um, literally it's a combination of the word in Greek for message, uh, and prefixed onto the front of it, a, a word that means more or less something like good. Um, so, so hence, good news. Um, the thing is, as I often tell my students in Greek when we get to this word, uh, there are a lot of different kinds of good news. And um, this word certainly did not mean, um, you know, good news, I saved $100 on my car insurance by switching to Geico. This is not, you know, this is not like good news. Um, the sun's out today. The sun's actually out today, uh, uh, you know, and um, those things are good, and we might speak of those as good news in a casual sense, but euangelion uh, was not good news in a casual sense, and uh, it was used in a lot of different contexts, but um, but usually good tidings or good news of a of a sort of uh, world-shattering sort, um, or uh, the, the kind of news that's going to change, uh, change your world, rock your world in some sense. Um, and uh, so it wasn't, uh, there's nothing within the word itself that refers to um, military victory, but that was one of its most frequent and common uses to refer to um, a victory won on a battlefield that might mean something like the end of the war, um, uh, which you can see how that, if you're on the winning side, um, could, uh, could carry connotations of salvation, deliverance, um, and uh, those kinds of ideas. The, um, the word also shows up in the Septuagint, and most famously, in uh, Isaiah chapter 40 and in Isaiah chapter 52. And Isaiah 40 is, uh, you know, in Isaiah 40, the good news is um, that God is returning to his people. Um, and that very, those very verses are taken up uh, in the New Testament again and again to refer to Jesus and the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. This is God's return to his people to uh, deliver them from exile. Um, and so you have, uh, so what I, I guess what I'm getting at there is that there are, you know, in the, in the Greco-Roman world, um, uh, it could refer to victory on the battlefield, it could actually refer to Caesar's ascension to the throne. Um, uh, you know, in the Jewish world, it was used, um, you know, in Isaiah to uh, refer to the return of Yahweh to his people. Um, but whatever we're talking about there, when we talk about euangelion, you're talking about news that's going to change the course of history, that kind of good news, um, you know, sort of cataclysmic good news. Um, and I think that when Paul uses this term with the Galatians, that's how they would have understood it. Would they have associated it uh, directly with Caesar or with some sort of um, military victory? Um, probably not. I mean, they... And they might have noticed the contrast between what Paul was saying about Jesus using the same words um, and what Rome was saying about Caesar, but probably they wouldn't have associated directly with that. Um, what they would have realized is that he's talking about good news that's going to change the course of the world and, and history. Um, the other term, church, 
Yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, a great, yeah, thank you. Um, and yeah, so to add to that, the, so the way that he's using it here in that particular paragraph in Galatians um, is to refer to uh, the message, so to speak. Um, but, uh, but you could imagine it this way then. Um, somebody has proclaimed... Um, this kind of uh, incredible good news to you, um, and then somebody else comes after you and proclaims um, proclaims a different set. Of, they're they're making the same claim that this is a sort of um, earth-shattering good news, except they've it's a different message. So um, one of them's true and one of them's false. But the but yeah, uh, the the word can also refer to. I mean, fundamentally, it does mean news or message. So, um, so, you know, like any message, it's possible to have a true one and a false one. Um, hopefully that helps a little bit. Um, the other term, church, the word that is translated church throughout the New Testament is ecclesia, which simply means assembly. And um, when we think of church, we may think of a building, we may think of a specifically religious institution in the ancient world. Um, and it wouldn't necessarily have had any of those connotations. It just meant a gathering of people um, for a united purpose. And I could say a little bit more about it. It has a, a really enormous background in um, classical thought that applies to um, democracy in ancient Greece. But the simple you know, way, place to leave it is that it refers to just a gathering of people for a united purpose, and that's probably all they heard when they heard that word. Um, but the united purpose, of course, being Jesus Christ. So, um, Okay, we are out of time, uh, so we'll go ahead and stop there, and I'll pick up, maybe say a few more notes about the end of chapter one, and then we'll move into chapter two next time. All right, thank you all.